0: Welcome to the second episode in the re-release Monday of the Alopecia Areata series. This is our Ask Me Anything episode with Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio. Hello and welcome to the emerging mechanisms of action in the treatment of moderate to severe alopecia areata in children. This is our Ask Me Anything installment of our 3 podcast program. Our program chairs, Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio, will be answering questions that have been submitted via our social media channels. They'll share their thoughts on current research and treatments and discuss the future of alopecia Ariada. I'd like to introduce Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: And Dr. Britt Craiglow. Hi. Hello. So we've had three webinar installments so far talking about the clinical side, the science side, and then the future of research and where we're headed. And now we're moving into this ask me anything with the two of you. So I think where we can maybe start is steroids. That's been a big question. It came up a lot in our social media. So how are the two of you prescribing systemic steroids?
1: I mean, I can, I can go first. This is Leslie. Um, so I typically have two kind of approaches to, um, systemic corticosteroids. I either use, um, prednisone or prednisolone or dexamethasone. And so if I'm doing dexamethasone, I will use it, um, two consecutive days, usually Saturdays and Sundays for four to eight weeks and dosing is dependent on the size of the child. So I either do two milligrams, four milligrams, or six milligrams a day, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, And then for prednisolone or prednisone, I usually will do three-week tapers um, starting at a milligram per kilogram per dose and then tapering over, you know, the next two weeks um, at half a milligram per kilogram and about up 0.25 milligrams per kilogram. I generally try not to keep patients on um, steroids for very long periods of time, but I sometimes will repeat like prednisolone or prednisone doses for, um, for flares.
2: Uh, this is Brit. Yeah. I, I think one of the things we, we learned on our last webinar is that there are a lot of different ways to do this. And I think importantly, you know, they're there really isn't a right way. It's more so kind of what, you know, probably what you're comfortable with. Unfortunately, we don't have tons of data to guide these decisions. Um, In general, I don't love systemic corticosteroids for anything, but, but I do use them in alopecia areata. I, um, I, I guess basically always do pulse dosing. So I use prednisone or prednisolone, Um, and I use one large dose once monthly, um, for up to six months is the max that I will ever do. And so I do five milligrams per kilo, usually have them do it on a Saturday after breakfast, and then they repeat it in four weeks. Um, the times when I will use, I like to think about using it when sort of the ball is rolling kind of in either one way or the other. So somebody coming in who's experiencing an uptick in shedding or rapidly progressive hair loss that I think about it sort of like a hail Mary pass or potentially somebody who hasn't really had much going on and then starts to suddenly have some spontaneous regrowth. Um, For me, those are the situations when I might reach for it um, versus, you know, someone's coming in who hasn't had any hair for two years or something. It's in my opinion, not likely to be super helpful. Um, And, you know, although it's a high dose, I have to say kids tend to tolerate it really well. Um, and then I usually, I never do it alone. Probably same with you, Leslie. Like I yeah. I always sort of stack treatments. So I do it along with topicals. If they're older, I might do injections. I use a lot of oral minoxidil, topical, um, tofacitinib. So kind of trying to throw the book at things. And with the idea that the prednisone is kind of the short-term thing while we you know, try to get these other things that may be more long lasting.
1: Yeah. And I think I'm similar in that I'll like tell families that the, you know, this can be effective, but it's not the long-term kind of, you know, treatment because then they might expect that we're doing this more frequently than I feel comfortable doing, or that's safe for them to do. And, you know, I definitely see with prednisone and prednisolone, you know, side effects, I've seen mood side effects and, um, certainly increased appetite side effects. um, And very occasionally we have unmasked um, type one or type two diabetes using um, corticosteroids. And I think that's why a lot of us don't like to use them, um, you know, unless we need to. Um, But I do think for some patients, it really can be a good bridge to, you know, whatever other therapy that I'm, you know, considering.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really important point to be very clear out of the gate that this is a short term treatment. Um, I've seen, cause I think it can be a very slippery slope. Um, you know, sort of like patients you've seen have been treated with steroids for eczema and they're like, well, that works. Why can't I just do that? And I've actually had a couple of patients treated by other providers with chronic prednisone who were, who were adrenally suppressed. Um, and, and it, you know, it's frankly dangerous. So I do think that we need to be really clear from the outset, set expectations with everything really, but especially prednisone, um, because the consequences of chronic therapy can be, you know, very problematic.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, another another place where it may have a role is when I see have kids referred and they're getting like a lot of kenalog injections. Um, And I feel like they're having a lot of discomfort from doing that. And it doesn't seem to be making sense for them to be going every four weeks for, um, you know, lots of intralesional injections. And sometimes that might be a place where, um, you know, systemic steroids might be, um, you know, more effective for like a one-time kind of shot rather than, you know, chronically doing lots of catalog.
0: Um, Dr. Craiglow, you mentioned um, using the steroids in conjunction with other uh, therapies. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on low-dose minoxidil
2: in children? So oral minoxidil is like one of my top five favorite medicines now. <laughs> um, I I started using it only a few years ago and was pretty cautious initially because there wasn't a ton of data Um, but I have to say now I, um, the majority of my patients with alopecia areata sort of age seven, eight, nine and up. Um, it's something I reached to very quickly. I have some younger patients on it also. It's, it's interesting. We don't, we don't really understand the mechanism completely. I first, we first started using it in combination with JAK inhibitors and saw that it in many patients had a synergistic effect. So patients who weren't regrowing or had only partially regrown, if we added oral minoxidil, um, they would oftentimes have a boost, like an improvement. And we've have a little, uh, just a small paper about that. Um, But then we started using it more as monotherapy or in combination with other things. And I think, um, you know, definitely we know it prolongs the antigen phase. It clearly has an effect on hair growth, but it, it probably does have some anti-inflammatory effects. Also, there's a study, if you look back in the literature, like in the eighties, very, very small study, like 20 patients treated with just low dose oral minoxidil monotherapy, and about 20% of patients had a really good response actually. So it's um, I really like to use it in combination with other medicines. I think, I mean, this is purely anecdotal. I, I need to kind of do some looking back at my patients, but I do think for some sort of kind of chronic patchy patients, it may be useful in preventing flares, not only in helping regrow. So a lot of times what I'll do is, is pulse prednisone, start oral minoxidil at the same time, get them off the pred after, you know, three to six months, and then maintain them on oral minoxidil. And I, um, you know, anecdotally, a lot of those patients have not really relapsed, um, for sure, some of them have, but I, I find that if people do well with that, they tend to, you know, to sort of have less disease activity over time. So, um, I, yeah, I'm a fan.
0: <laughs> so is there more research being done into the minoxidil?
2: Um, I think, so there's a lot, there have been several papers now in the adult literature for other hair loss disorders. So a few sort of big, um, big papers documenting hundreds of patients, um, for a variety of, conditions, mostly androgenetic alopecia. Mm -hmm. Um, I published recently using it for androgenetic alopecia in teenage girls. So there, there definitely is a lot more in the literature sort of for hair loss in general, mostly AGA, but not almost nothing really in alopecia areata. So I think more people, you know, as they learn about it are starting to use it. And, um, so hopefully we'll, you know, we'll see more moving forward, more, you know, systematic data and not just me saying, oh, I think it (laughs) works.
1: I think, you know, mechanistically it makes sense, you know, that one of the reasons that we see alopecia areata is like that push to catagen. And if we can keep, you know, the hair as an antigen in addition to doing some immune blocker, I mean, it, it makes sense that it would be synergistic but I think we need data on the monotherapy. I don't know that I'm like Mm -hmm. totally convinced on monotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, Although maybe for a subset of patients where the immune kind of system is less of an issue, um, it may be more effective.
0: Okay. Let's talk tofacitinib. When do you initiate it in patients? What's the safety like? Can they go off of it? We got a lot of questions about tofacitinib. So if you could just sort of walk us through like beginning to end of treating with tofacitinib, I think that would be really helpful.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, I think I'm going to it more than, um, than I used to, for sure. Typically, it's, it's patients who have more than 50% hair loss or have, um, are affected really severely um, for quality of life. With their alopecia areata, generally, I'm having the conversation more in patients who are 10 and over than younger than 10. Although now I do have a subset of patients younger than 10 who are also on tofacitinib, and I think also, you know, it's a it's a conversation with the family about risks and benefits, and you know, me not knowing all the long term side effects. Um, you know, of the medicine, while we know the short term, most patients do really well. And we haven't seen lots of like changes in, um, you know, blood counts or uh, lipids or liver function. Um, I can't say that I know everything about, you know, what's going to happen in the future if you're on it for a long time. I think also I, I talk when I'm talking to families about starting it, I'm talking to them that this is a chronic medicine right now that it's not um it's not something that they'll be on for two months and then come off of likely they'll be on for many years um you know until we have something that's more effective safer but it's similar you know to treating someone you know with psoriasis and if you're putting them on a systemic they're going to be on that systemic for years um if they want to you know stay clear in terms of uh, you know, risks in younger in younger kids. Generally, I found that, you know, kids that are five to seven have tolerated it quite well. They feel like the dosing has to be the same. And I'm still trying to kind of get my head around that. Um, you know, in younger kids, initially, I tried to use... Um, so tofacitinib typically for alopecia is given like five milligrams twice a day. Um, for younger kids, I tried to see if I could do five milligrams once a day. And now that it's available in a liquid, you know, try to do, you know, even lower dosing. But I have found that um, even for kids as young as five, I still need um, five milligrams twice a day um, in order to see, you know, a response.
2: And I think like a lot of these things, when we're going into uncharted territory, we start with older patients who are very severe and then as we gain a comfort level and patients do well, you know, we start using it in, in younger age groups and maybe more sort of moderate patients, but, you know, I choose patients similarly. And it really is like, it's a, it's a discussion. And, um, I think, you know, there are some kids for whom it's a real obvious choice. Um, and there are others for whom it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a weighing the risks and benefits. And, um, but I agree it, you know, alopecia is it. a chronic disease and it likely requires a chronic therapy. However, I think, um, you know, they're anecdotally have some patients who have been able to taper down the dose or even come off drug. Um, and I think, you know, hope there will be some data from the trials, you know, looking at relapse and recapture and things like that. So we may get more information on, on that. And you know, what I tell people is that, look, we're, you know, we're looking at this for the foreseeable future. And if you're, if you do well, and you've had your, had complete regrowth for six, eight, 12 months. And sometimes I will think about initiating a, a taper, but a very, very slow taper, like I'm talking, take away, you know, two pills a week like for three months. So they take BID five days and once a day, two days, and then creep back a little farther. I think it's, you know, it's really important to understand that if you go backwards with alopecia areata, you really go backwards. It's not like you have eczema and you come off and you flare and then you can kind of restart with alopecia areata. If you've been growing hair, especially females who tend to wear their hair, you know, longer, it takes them years often to get to a place where they're comfortable. So if you all of a sudden just say, oh, let's stop and see how you do, then they're, you know, potentially going really far back in time. So, um, but I do, you know, I do try to slowly get to the, you know, kind of lowest effective dose and and there are patients who, you know, don't even have complete regrowth with regular dosing. So it's not necessarily an option for a ton of people, but, um, but for sure we try to do that. And I, and I think, you know, I agree with what you said, Leslie, that they're, there will, we're at the beginning of this. And so while they may need treatment forever, they may not need, they're probably not, they're not going to be on tofacitinib forever. There are going to be more options eventually. And, and I do think it's interesting to consider that maybe in a subset of patients, especially those who are younger, who have had shorter disease duration, maybe we, we might be able to actually change the natural history of the disease by intervening early. So, um, you know, it's hard (laughs) to collect that data, but, um, but I do think that it's not a huge leap to think that, that, you know, that might be possible. I think similarly, like we're thinking about that in eczema with dupilumab, like if we start these kids earlier, we could, we potentially, you know, change the trajectory. And so I think in the next five or 10 years, we'll know, you know, we'll know so much more, there'll be so much more experience. Sort of addressing
0: the patient side of tofacitinib, how do you, each of you, um, counsel your patients on the risk benefits of the drug?
1: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm really honest about all the data that's out there, um, you know, for families, you know, I talk about malignancy and, uh, you know, there have been reports of, you know, GI lymphomas and, you know, adult patients who took it for rheumatoid arthritis Um, I talk about, you know, blood clot risk with, you know, JAK inhibitors and, you know, tofacitinib is being, um, you know, has been evaluated and there've been kind of FDA kind of warnings about, you know, blood clot risk. So we talk about that and, you know, we do talk, I always talk about like, if you're going for a long plane ride and, you know, generally kids are super active and they're not gonna be sedentary. So it's not much of an issue, but if they're gonna be on a plane for, you know, 14 hours, they probably should be getting up and, you know, to reduce that risk. Um, talk about infections, um, you know, kind of low level infections like, you know, um, colds and, you know, herpes virus reactivation. We have seen some kids who have um, gained weight when they go on tofacitinib. And so I do talk about that as a potential side effect. although although it's, it's few and, you know, far between that I've seen that changes in lipids, you know, the need for kind of following blood work. Although I will admit that over time I do less and less blood work (laughs) in these kids. You know, initially when I started I was doing it pretty frequently. And then, um, and frequently meaning like, you know a month after, you know, baseline a month after starting and then every two to three months after. And now I will do, you know, baseline six weeks after start Maybe four months later. And then if they're doing well, it goes to six months. And then my patients who have been on it for nine years, you know, they're getting like once a year kind of, um, you know, blood work. Um, but that's, you know, that's part of it too, because, you know, for blood work for a lot of kids is really challenging. And so they kind of have to know what they're in for in terms of like how I'm going to monitor you know, if I see a side effect, will we, you know, stop the medicine? If they get really sick, will we stop the medicine? And how, you know, some patients, even if they stop it for a few weeks could backtrack. Um, And I've seen that, um, you know, someone gets, um, you know, mono and has to to stop because they're pretty sick. And then they've lost, you know, the gains that they had on the medicine um, again, I've only had a few patients who've had you know illnesses that were um, serious enough for them to have to stop the medicine, and um, you know, in a pretty large you know number of patients.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's really important to be straightforward and honest. You know, there's a lot we know, but there's a lot we don't know, and I think um, you know it, it's hard now, especially because the majority of data we have is in. People with RA who are older and sicker, many of whom are also on methotrexate, and in, in studies, and so we're really not comparing apples to apples. Um, I, I've mentioned this before, but I think with the indication for JIA down to age two, that for me was comforting. Um, but I still, I don't have so many concerns short term, but you know the question about, you know, manipulating the immune system in this way, starting from a young age, like, does that have implications over time? We don't know necessarily what those are. And so it is a risk. And so I do make sure I use the word cancer and, you know, say, look, these things are probably very unlikely, but, but the risk is not zero. And so, you know, the majority of patients I think would do just about anything, you know, to have their hair back. But for some families, you know, especially if their child is coping well, you know, the idea of potentially causing harm at some point is just, it's too much for them. And so, you know, that's where hopefully down the road we'll have more data and there will be things. And another side effect, I agree. I, I honestly, most people tolerate it just fine. Um, day to day, like, there's very minimal um, weight gain. We see sometimes acne is also something um, that we see with tovacitinib, you know, teenagers get acne anyway, though. So it that's, that's totally doable, but in general, you know, really well tolerated. Um, but people need to be aware of, you know, the black box warning and the unknowns and all that.
0: Is there any data about how alopecia areata patients um, on tofacitinib are faring through the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I'd say that um, I think, you know, both of us have experienced patients who, I have many patients who have told me that they had, you know, COVID after the fact and that they didn't stop the medicine Um and they were doing fine, or patients who called and you know told me that they tested positive but were minimally symptomatic. And in those cases, we probably have stopped it, you know, while they had fever or you know had symptoms, and then restarted it. But generally, um, we haven't had any complications, you know, related to COVID-19 and being on um, tofacitinib or JAK inhibitors. Um, you know, particularly.
2: Yeah, I agree. I have a lot of patients who, you know, I learn after the fact that they had it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, JAK inhibitors have been studied as a treatment for COVID. You know, anecdotally I have, you know, a lot of, I have a lot of patients who tested positive only because they knew they were exposed and were completely asymptomatic. And, um, I think, you know, the question with the, with vaccines is definitely you know coming up a lot more now um we don't have evidence-based guidance but the american college of rheumatology is recommending holding for patients on um, tofacitinib to hold the dose for a week after each injection um which makes people nervous. I think, you know, when people are taking it for hair loss, it's like, it's like no other medication. You know, like if I always say, if you told them they had to get up at six in the morning and do 10 jumping jacks and, and, and then take it like for it to work, they would do it. (laughs) So the idea of, of stopping for, you know, a week or something can, can cause anxiety. So I, you know, I tell them that that's a recommendation because theoretically the vaccine, you may, you may not mount, you know, the same immune response to the vaccine, Um, but then of course I have plenty of patients who have gotten vaccinated without, you know, sort of without asking and, you know, we haven't checked antibodies or anything. So, um, but so far, you know, no, certainly no different or, or poor outcomes. I will say that for older patients with the vaccine, I am recommend, you know, if they're over 18, I don't really see many of those patients, but, um, for over 18, I would recommend the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines rather than J&J, given the risk for clotting, um, just because we know that Jack inhibitors, as Leslie was mentioning, do probably baseline slightly increase, increase clot risk. So,
1: Yeah, and I think we're also getting a lot of questions about should people get vaccinated if they have alopecia areata or because it's an autoimmune disease. And I don't think there's any data to suggest that... Um, they're going to have like a flare or an adverse event um, getting the vaccination. And I know it's a concern among many patients because, um, you know, patients do report that the timing of their alopecia flares sometimes in the past has been, um, you know, temporarily related to getting a flu vaccine or some other vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and vaccinations do change how your immune response is. So I, I hear that, you know, um, and I understand their concern, but I don't think um, it would be a reason not to get the vaccination. And I, I always tell patients that if you get COVID-19, you're probably going to have a bigger flare then, you know, from just getting the vaccination. Um And so I, I think that's a, a lot of the questions coming into from, um, from patients and their families.
2: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, and I do like, I echo that I do think it is, you know, I think in the past, I used to sort of dismiss some of these things before, you know, patients relating a flare to this or or that because I I always sort of feel like we can all look back in our life a few months and identify something that was a bit different. But you know it it is possible that that you know illness or vaccination or um, you know time of the year may you know may play a role and not necessarily be you know the only factor in terms of a trigger. But you know it's certainly possible. So I think it's important to you know to hear patients as you said Leslie when they say that. And I think maybe, maybe you can tell us what you say when, cause you've done the, the research about looking at kind of seasonality with flares. Cause I, yeah. I hear it a lot. <laughs> I have to say, I really do, you know, patients really bring this up and, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for your work to say, Hey, you know, there actually, maybe there is something to this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think there has to be something to it. I feel like anyone who's taking care of patients with alopecia areata Um, Here's from a subset of, you know, patients that um, they flare certain times of year. And it seems that time of year is similar for a lot of people. Um, So like the fall and often, um, you know, March or April, which, you know, do coincide with um, big allergy seasons um, and also um, changes in kind of UV for a lot of most, I mean, most of the world, to be honest, you know, even in places that are, you know, close to the equator, they still have differences. Um, So, you know, for patients who do have that, I, I do, um, talk to families about what their symptoms are like during that time of year to see if we can potentially alter those symptoms. Because I do think if your immune system is getting revved up from, you know, terrible seasonal allergies, then, you know, it has this extra programming on it. And why wouldn't it do alopecia areata, you know, at that same time? And so, you know, sometimes we'll start antihistamines, you know, a month before um, that happens. For a few patients who are very, um, you know, super consistent where it happens all the time, sometimes I will do a pulse of steroids, Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of that month before, and then the month of their big, um, you know, flares for allergies to see if we can kind of hold it off. I'm not totally sure that we do though. You know, I whether it really makes a difference. Um, you know, I think controlling those symptoms may help a little, but I feel like still many patients still see that seasonality. Um, we're trying to figure out, you know, whether it's just the uv or is it vitamin d levels and you know other factors that could also influence just hair growth in general or pushing hair from the antigen phase to like catagen and then if you have alopecia areata that's like a perfect storm um but i don't know that we we totally understand that um you know and I think in our, you know in the first podca- the first uh, webinar that we did it talked a little bit about um, AlleGRA um, as you know one of the m- medicines that has been used. And so you know the only reason that that one is used is because there were a few studies where it was used in combination with something else, so either squaric acid or um, clebatazole, and patients who had allergy symptoms seemed to do better. Um, in terms of less flaring, um, more regrowth when they were on Allegra. Um, You know, is Allegra special as an antihistamine? I don't think so. I mean, I think probably if you did cetirizine or something else, um, you would probably have a similar effect. But, you know, for families who do feel that, I mean, I usually do recommend Allegra. Um, I think it's not, uh, you know, not a particularly, dangerous, you know, medication with very few, you know, side effects and they're taking it a few times a year, I think, um, you know, it would be okay.
2: I agree. it's a pretty benign intervention and um, is it possible? I mean, many of these kids have seasonal allergies anyways, right? So, um, but then,
1: you know, and then we're learning like, you know, um, dupilumab might be an effective treatment for a subset of patients with, you know, um, ATP and I've definitely seen that in my own practice. And, you know, I don't think it's a medicine for someone who doesn't have atopic symptoms. Uh, but we, you know, I can tell you anecdotally, I've had patients who were on tofacitinib and we transitioned them to um, dupilumab because they also have terrible atopic dermatitis. And they haven't flared when they came off of tofacitinib. Um, and then I've had patients who have had monotherapy with um, dupilumab and have regrowth, full regrowth of their hair, you know, from, you know, pretty, um, you know, severe hair loss on their scalp and the side benefit of their eczema being, you know, much better also.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting. I think, you know, um, everybody should read Leslie's paper in the JAD describing these patients. Um, But I do think we may eventually have more sort of personalized treatment, right? You know, we may sort of identify these different phenotypes, um, who were able to say, oh, you know what, maybe dupilumab is something that's reasonable for you because you have these two things and maybe they're interconnected, you know, interconnected. And, um, so it, it is kind of cool to, to think about the future. I mean, for sure. I, you know, I like the idea of dupilumab. <laughs> I mean, even though I use a lot of Jack inhibitor, Jack inhibitors, um, it's, um, you know, especially if someone has really bad eczema, if you could get this kind of like side effect of of hair growth, it's pretty cool, right? But then, if you look in the literature, there are reports of patients developing sure. hair loss on dupilumab. So, um, so it is. You know, this story is definitely being written. But but cool to think that you know, in five years, we may be able to identify, you know, treatments that may work better for this patient or or that patient.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know when when we're thinking about like future. For me, it's like, can we come up with biomarkers to identify, you know, what medicines are going to be the best? Because, you know, I think right now we have some really good ones um, and but we're we're guessing a little bit, you know, like who is going to respond to which one, you know, um, you know, for patients with at- atopic dermatitis, I think, you know, um, dupilumab has been now, I'm starting to be first line because one, I can get it more easily. I think safety, you know, has been, you know, a little bit better. Um, but yeah, if we had, you know, biomarkers and that's being worked on, you know, that we could do a simple blood test and say, all right, these cytokines are more elevated. And I don't know if it's that simple, but um, you know, maybe we could, you know, have an algorithm that would say you should start with baricitinib or tofacitinib, you know, whichever one. um, And that would be amazing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think just having an (laughs) on-label indication (laughs) is really going to be huge. Um, You know, and hopefully, hopefully that's, coming and you know of course in Pete with the little kids we'll have to wait a while but I do think that you know once something is approved hopefully down to age 12 it may become easier a little bit to get it off label for younger patients because um, that is I mean I think right now the biggest barrier to treating these kids is is access um, and there's certainly a lot of patients who would benefit but you know, we're not able to do it because of, you know, coverage issues. Um, so um, so it's cool. You know, we, we talked in the last webinar about the clinical trials that are, you know, multiple have, well, and has finished phase three, there's ritlosidinib, which is close. And so I think, you know, hopefully um, we'll see an approval coming. And then also, you know, there are a few Jack inhibitors that are that are at the FDA presently for um, atopic dermatitis. And um, that will be exciting also because a lot of these kids have both, right? And so if we can, you know, maybe those dupilumab failures quote for, you know we'll be able to to be treated with a JAK inhibitor for their eczema and then have the benefit of of regrowth. So I think um, it's only gonna get better. You know, I always tell patients, like it's never a good time to have alopecia areata. Now is better than it was even a year ago and then five years from now is going to be even better and I think what's so cool for me is that you know you used to see like you know the 18 month old come in who had no hair or very extensive and it was just like the conversation was really just kind of about coping and you know sort of gloomy (laughs) in a way the future because a lot of times those kids you know we're really, are really recalcitrant to treatment. And we didn't have anything that was reliably effective. And I think now what's cool is that I'm certainly, I'm not putting an 18 month old on a jack inhibitor, but I can tell the parents, Hey, look, like there is hope, like there is hope for this. Like it's hard to see now, but you know, if, and when it becomes clear that it's time, like there are going to be options, which is, I mean, it's huge. I just think it's made (laughs) it's made our life easier. Right. And it, as a yeah. physician, it always feels awful to say like, Oh, I don't really have anything to offer, <laughs> to offer you. Right. Um, and even, but now, even if we're not doing it right at this moment, like it's something that we can do. And, and, you know, there's pretty good data to show that we, you have time with alopecia It's not something that yeah. has to be done. You know, obviously every patient and family wanted it to be done yesterday, but even if you haven't had hair for five, seven, eight years, like your chance of regrowing is pretty similar, um, to someone who's only had it for a short time. So, you know, I do think though intervening early is useful for a lot of reasons, you know, mostly just for the patient experience, but, but potentially kind of quieting that inflammation early could, you know, could have favorable prognostic
1: outcomes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't think we're downplaying that it's hard to get the medicine for a lot of, um, you know, physicians and, you know, people taking care of, uh, you know, kids and adults with alopecia areata, because, you know, like I still like celebrate every time I get tofacitinib or a JAK inhibitor, you know, for a patient. And, um, you know, and I do tell families that it might take us three months to get the medicine because, you know, the insurance is gonna deny it and then I'm gonna write a letter and they're gonna take 30 days and then deny it again. And then I'm gonna do a peer to peer and they're gonna have still a period of time to kind of make a decision. Um, So, you know, I think there, we're always talking about alternate medicines, you know, and therapies too. But um, I feel like more and more, if you can provide the science, um, you, you know, you can often, you know, convince the, you know, um, the insurance company that this is a worthwhile medicine for someone who is, you know, has a chronic disease and is struggling and, um, and this is like life altering, you know, in, in so many ways.
2: For sure. I mean, it's, it's nice. I think, you know, initially the list of references that I would send was like, you know, three papers and now, you know, there's so much more data and we have, you know, jack inhibitors included in a published treatment algorithm. And we have more ammunition, I would say, you know, so to speak, but I still do think that it's important for payers, other physicians, the general public, et cetera, to understand, you know, to really stop viewing this as a cosmetic disease. I mean, I still get denials that say we don't cover, you know, cosmetic treatment. It's like, this is, we're not, these people don't want to look you know, like a celebrity, like a definition of cosmetic, right. Is to enhance one's appearance, right? All these patients want is just to look normal. Like we are restoring normal. That is all we are doing here. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't get denials for acne because it's cosmetic or, you know, it, it's, it's kind of silly when you think, I mean, when you really think about it, a lot of, if, with that lens, a lot of what we do in dermatology could be considered quote, cosmetic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, think about granuloma annular, like there's so many things that could be put in that category that we would never say that's cosmetic, you know, so, but there's something about hair that, that just is different when in reality, I think hair is sort of more important to people than anything else. You know, it's, um, it's, it's such a crucial component of who we are as human beings and, um, not having it is, you know, dramatically life altering in a way that most nothing else we see, you know, really it is particularly, you know, when it's severe. So I still tell families, like, I don't get it in the same way you get it, but I think yeah. I'm pretty close by now. Um, but it is sort of easy to, to go like, well, you could wear a hat or wear a weight. And it's like, no, 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 no. if oh. that were you or if that were your child, that's, you know, forget it. You have to really try to you know, put, I'm always telling the residents, like, put yourself in their shoes, you know, is what you're asking them to do reasonable? Is that something you would do? You know, how would you feel if it were you? And I, you know, I guarantee you anybody who woke up and, you know, looked in the mirror and was losing their eyebrows and eyelashes and hair like that would be horrifying. Um, and so yeah. I think we're, you know, yeah. we'll get there, but it's important. It definitely reminds
0: me of what you said in our very first webinar. You said hair is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, Dr. Costello-Socio, is there any scientific basis for trying an AIP diet?
1: Yeah, so I've I've thought about AIP diets a lot. Um, And so these are these uh, like autoimmune, you know, Uh, diets that usually start with an elimination kind of portion, and then a reintroduction of, um, you know, foods one by one. And so, you know, in and of itself, like when you've done the reintroduction, the diet is really it's whole foods, less processed foods, um, you know, really, you know, good food, you know, overall. I think, you know, what I have the big issue with is the elimination portion of it, because during that time, you're really eliminating most food groups. And I know there are people out there who are gonna disagree with me on this, but, um, you know, it's like-
2: (laughs) grains,
1: Legumes, like nightshade vegetables, dairy. Like this is our kids like diet, (laughs) you know? This is what kids eat to grow. Um, And so, you know, that's what, what concerns me. And there's no real data for alopecia areata that making a change with this diet influences like number of flares or regrowth. Um, And so I think, you know, when families want to do this, I usually will emphasize great, you're going to like increase your whole foods, you know, concentrate on, you know, eating really healthy foods, less processed foods, and that will only be helpful. But, um, you know, eliminating foods in children who are growing is concerning for me.
2: We get so many questions about diet, and Leslie, you gave such a great overview in the webinar for people who, who didn't catch that. Um, you know, what I've kind of realized is that, you know, there's obviously, you know, we don't have data for these things. I think sometimes it's what people want to try is really benign. But also, I think when, you know, kids are growing and particularly you know, sort of nutrition wise, it's important, but also I worry in older kids about sort of creating unhealthy relationships with food and things like that. And so, and, and, you know, I think in alopecia, really lots of diseases, people feel very out of control, right? You want to have something in your environment that you can manipulate to make things better. And I think diet is a really easy thing to go to. Um, And I, I, and I, you know, I've seen patients who have come in, you know, with alopecia universalis who have been gluten-free and dairy-free and this free and that free for years. Mm -hmm. And obviously it hasn't helped. Right. Um, but the family, it's like something that can be, you know, controlled. And so
1: control is so important in this disease because you have no control. You're so out of control. Yeah right? You have like, you can't tell when these flares are going to happen. And then the other part about the food is that, you know, food is really social. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of these kids are struggling because their change in appearance has altered kind of what they can do socially. Mm -hmm. And then if we start to, you know, remove other things and put more restrictions on their lives, I think kids feel um, sometimes um, from their parents that they're being like over-controlled, um, and especially with chronic diseases where, you know, it's like you have to do these medicines and these topicals and, and, then, we're, and then we add diet to that. Um, and it kind of, it, I just feel like kids start to, um, I don't wanna say fall apart, but they, they, they lose their control too. And, you know, control for kids is really important also that they have the ability to make decisions, that they're part of the, you know, decisions of their treatment plan. And when we do these diet things, they just, they lose everything.
2: Um, Yeah. Yeah. And they're already sort of different when they have, you know, alopecia right. Something is different about them. And all of a sudden they're at the birthday party. You know, I have two kids with severe food allergies. It is a drag, you know, it's hard to be the kid at the birthday party who has to bring your own, you know, treat. It's not fun. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel good. Um, And, you know, for kids who already have something that, makes them feel like they're standing out or, you know, it just, it can add, um, you know, add to that. And for sure, you know, I tell families, look, maybe in five years, I will be eating my words. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But right (laughs) now we don't have evidence and, and, you know, if, if you want to do some minor thing, you know, cool, but, but I don't think that, you know, that it's, yeah really realistic and and i can't
1: imagine that like eating a tomato is what's going to be the answer right right? or like the you know either way like a lot of these things are you know they're so um they're so minimal you know when you think about it on like a granular level you're like i couldn't possibly you know it just eat, eat like you know eat good food, eat whole foods, eliminate all the processed stuff. And you're probably like doing really good things for your body.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. It's similar, right. you know, just stress. Like everybody wants to talk about stress and, and I have parents come in, you know, somebody has told them this is be. Quote, because of stress and the parents are feeling terrible that their, that their child who's in elementary school is stressed out and it's their fault. And it, you know, kind of, you know, I tell people, what about stress? And I say, look, like, you know, it's not because of stress, right? We know that stress can play a role in inflammation. And so for sure, maybe there are people for whom it plays a role in triggering a flare, but like your child does not have this because of stress, your child has this because they have this genetic predisposition and, and something tip them over, but there's also nothing wrong with trying to, you know, reduce stress, right? Yeah. So that's not wrong, but I don't want you to be worrying that your kid is stressed or, you know, so, but if you want to do mindfulness or you want to do yoga or do more activities, like that is going to be beneficial to you in other ways, you know, probably not necessarily for your hair, but there's nothing wrong with that. But I think um, you know, kind of a similar thing. Like if, if they're making changes that are sort of good for health then that's, you know, that's one thing, but if they're doing it just because of the hair, it's probably not.
0: Okay. So you were talking Dr. Costello-Socio, um, and Dr. Craiglow about the importance of control for the child. And at some point, you know, all of these different treatments, may result in a loss of feeling like they're in control or trying to add in a diet or an elimination. Um, So I'm wondering in the context of something like tofacitinib or other medical treatments, how do you balance the conversation between parents who may wanna treat or don't wanna treat and kids who do or don't wanna treat? And when they're on opposing sides, how do you handle that conversation in the clinic?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we see that a lot. Um, And, you know, sometimes I'll see it where the child wants to treat and, you know, the parent is really um, opposed to it. And I think that's actually the hardest um, scenario um, because I can't, I cannot force anyone to, you know, accept a treatment for their child. Um, But I can give them the information. I, you know, I, you know, ultimately I'm treating the kid, and so I'm supporting them to have their voice heard to their parents about, you know, why are the reasons that they want to treat and so that they can have a dialogue at home. We, we see it the other way, too, where um, kids don't want to treat. They, you know, feel tired from treatments or they're worried about the side effects. Um, but the parents want to do everything. And and usually when I see that, I mean, I think we will take a pause in the um, kind of our conversation and actually just address that, say, you know, it sounds like we're, you know, we're on two different sides of things. Your child is expressing that they don't want to do treatments. You know, would it be reasonable to take a few months off from therapy and then, and then, you know, think about the other options and regroup because, you know, again, ultimately the kid is the number one. Um, and you know the parents there to support, and we want to be partnered with the parent. But uh, you know I'm not going to force kids to do something that doesn't make sense for them. Um, and I know that's hard because the parents say, well maybe they don't understand the long term you know implications of not having hair socially. Or um, but I think usually for my approach is let's take a pause for a short period of time, and then you know see where everyone is
2: when you have when you have limited options and those that you have are not necessarily effective it, it can be kind of exhausting and and the the experience of getting your hopes up only to be let down is hard and I think some people thinking about kind of going through that again it, you know it, it influences their decision I mean I think we probably see this the most in very young kids where the parents want to treat. And the, you know, obviously and the kids, like not necessarily even really aware what's going on, like sort of the two and a half and under oftentimes, and and even older than that, it really depends on the kid. But, you know, there, I just always tell the parents like, look, we have to make sure we're treating the child and not ourselves. And, and and I I make sure to say not ourselves to include me Mm -hmm. in that discussion and not really kind of put it on them. Cause like, you know, I, I want to see all my patients with hair. Right. But, but at the same time, but just to kind of like acknowledge to them, like, look, I get it. Like if it were my kid, I, I can imagine having that feeling. It is really hard to see your child looking dramatically different Mm -hmm. from who you remember them as, or to have people looking at you in public or telling you to, you know, keep up the fight and their story about cancer because they think your child has cancer, you know, like that is, Mm -hmm. it is really hard as a parent. And it's of course, like we want, we want the world for our kids. Right. We, you know, so I think it's really important as dermatologists to kind of really acknowledge that for people and, and say, but we, we need to do what's best for them at this point in time. And if that means we're a little uncomfortable, you know, and, and we have to do something for ourselves and, and that's what that means, but you know, we are here for them. And I think that that's where the conversation you know, having these potential future options has made that conversation easier now, you know, Um, because I think we can say like, look, we'll we'll get there when we need, you know, if and when we need to. Um, But right now we want to make sure, you know, we want to make sure, you know, Johnny stays healthy and we're not doing anything, you know, that could be harmful or Know, or uncomfortable, you know, I see kids who have come in and someone's given them injections at age three or done squaric acid. And, you know, it's like the treatment <laughs> should never be worse than the disease. Right. So those are things that, we, you know, really need to keep in mind, you know, when we talk, when we talk to families, but I, I really do think it, you know, a lot of the parents have this guilt, like they feel bad that they feel bad, you know, um, because their kid doesn't have cancer. And then they feel like, oh, they shouldn't, you know, is vain or you know it really it is just hair. And so I I think just kind of acknowledging that like look this is hard for everybody. Like that's normal. You know, you don't have to feel bad about that.
1: Yeah. And I think also like, you know, I always say to families, you know, doesn't matter who's not on board with doing treatment, like saying no now doesn't mean that they can't say yes to those treatments in six months, a year, two years. And you know, with all these hopeful, you know, options a child who is not interested in treatment or a family who's not interested in treatment should still be seeing someone because, you know, kids change and their views on, you know, themselves change. And they may say in two years, you know, I want to do treatment now. And before they didn't. Um, And I see a lot of kids feel guilty about making that shift because everyone was like praising them for like, you're adjusting so well, everything is going perfectly. And then they're either not feeling great anymore, or they want to do something more. And so, you know, leaving that, that conversation open, that you know, this isn't closed, because you said no, now, like, in the future, you could say yes, and I'll be happy to support you in either, you know, either way.
2: I think, yeah, even if you sort of decide on not treating or taking a break or a pause, like, it's kind of nice to, you know, just make a make a follow-up appointment for six months or a year or something. So you're leaving these things open and, you know, we'll check in then, then, or if things change before then, you know, you let me know. And I think what you said, Leslie, about people kind of like praising the patient who's coping well, that again, the psychology of this disease is really fascinating, right? Mm Because we are like you know, the kids who kid who is really well adjusted, we're, you know, like, oh, isn't their confidence amazing? They've just done so well with it, and it's really incredible, and we're so proud of them, and et cetera. And like all those things are true. But for the kid who's not, which is more normal really to not feel good about it, it doesn't mean that we're not still proud of them, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's these kids and there's all this, you know. Sort of the positivity around alopecia areata, which I, you know, I kind of get why it has to exist. But you see, sort of the prominent faces of the disease are people who are embracing it, and you know, bald is beautiful, and all of these things. And for some people, that works. But for some people, that makes them feel even worse about everything because they feel like, what's wrong with me? that I can't embrace it, like he or she can, like, this is Mm -hmm. ruining my life. And it's even like, their self esteem, I think, is impacted even more, because they feel like something's wrong with them, that they can't kind of get over it, you know, and so that's, again, where I, I always ask the patients, like, how do you feel about it? You know, I usually like, I do a lot of scale from one to 10, you know, with a lot of things that I see. And, you know, a lot of kids, I do think, especially kind of adolescents, they will underestimate, um, you know, like the kid who's like wearing a hat, not making eye contact, very quiet, who tells you, no, it doesn't really bother me. Like it, it does bother them, you know, and that's okay. But it's also kind of a coping mechanism, right. To say that it doesn't, because if you walk, if you have, if nobody's given you something that works and you walk through life feeling like this is awful, you know, it's not helpful. So again, it is, it's very complicated, but I, you know, coming back to that sort of acknowledging that it is normal for it to be hard, I think is, um, you know, it's just really an important part of our job. I mean, people come and they have had dermatologists even tell them, oh, it's just tear, you know, you're still beautiful. And like, it's not helpful, you know, Mm -hmm. it's well-meaning, but if you're, again, like putting yourself in their shoes, like that is not what you want to hear somebody say when you went to get help for a medical problem. Right. So, so as we come
0: to a close, I want to bring it back around to research for a moment. We've sort of been talking about the research broadly throughout our conversation, but Looking toward the future, and within the next five years, is there anything specific that the two of you can pinpoint that you are hopeful is going to come out of the research that's being done now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I well, think perfect. my biggest hope is biomarkers, um, which I kind of expressed so that mm-hmm. we could be more targeted with therapy. I think there's going to be a shift to other pathways that are important for alopecia areata that um, kind of go beyond the jack, the Jackstat pathway. And so I'm excited about that because not everyone responds to um, jack inhibitors. And so we have this population that, you know, we talk up the medicine and then they try it and they don't have a response. Um, And then I think just like, you know, really understanding the epidemiology and, you know, the the subpopulations within the big category of alopecia areata, I think for me is going to be the next leap so that we're not just like, everyone is just alopecia areata. And yes, they all have, you know, the disease, but they have specific features which are going to make, you know, certain therapies more effective.
2: Yeah. I I do think kind of moving, you know, more towards choosing the right medicine for the right patient, hopefully we'll, we'll move toward that. And, and even just with, you know, with the jack inhibitors, having a, having more systematic data about, you know, percent of patients who tend to respond and, you know, are there certain clinical characteristics that are more, you know, favorable in terms of responding and over what period of time? And, and then if we do look at, you know, washout from, you know, in the clinical trials, like, are, you know, are there people that actually maintain hair growth? And is there something about them that we can identify, whether it be, you know, biomarkers or something in just sort of the clinical history, you know, more recent onset or, you know, what have you to kind of just have better answers to a lot of these questions that we sort of say, well, you know, hopefully, I, I mean, I I hope that in five or 10 years, I'm not using the word anecdotally all the time <laughs> when I, you know, when I talk about this stuff and actually am able to, or, you know, we can say, well, the data suggests that, you know, and there's still going to be a lot of questions, but I do think like, you know, as cheesy as it sounds like the future really is bright, <laughs> you know, like this is what is cool is this hopefully in the not too distant future will be a disease that people really Don't have to live with if they are amenable to treatment. And you know, now we think about these patients who, not in pediatrics so much, but in adults who have had alopecia areata for twenty or thirty years, and their chance of responding to these drugs is very minimal. Some of them will, but you know, eventually that population will go away, right? As we're able to, like, oh, you know, people come in, you treat them early, and so these people floating around who have had their disease forever, like. it's not going to be a thing hopefully at some point right so um kind of cool to um to envision that you know for the future i think i'll just say that treating patients with hair loss while demanding emotionally (laughs) in particular is really rewarding um you know from a just from a doctor perspective you know we all kind of went into medicine to help people. Right. And I think it's sort of, for me, like, feels like the epitome of doctoring or at least, you know, I'm not saving anyone's life obviously. So not quite, but you know, in dermatology, like when you see somebody whose life is really dramatically altered because of, you know, an intervention that you, you know, decided on with them and um, the, the patients and the families are so incredibly grateful. Um, I mean, I cry way more (laughs) with my families who have, you know, with Alpsheriata than any other disease, but, but for me, like, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of, it's really like what it's all about. So I think, you know, if we can go into these visits with that lens and remind ourselves of that, it's useful.
1: Yeah. And it's like the epitome of like family centered care too. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like what Peds germ is really, you know, about like disease impacting the child, but impacting, you know, the family and the siblings. And so I, 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 I agree with you too. I mean, this is like caring for these families is, um, is, you know, one of the best things that I've ever chosen to do. Right.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for uh, doing this. Ask me anything today. It was exciting to have questions from our listeners and it was exciting to hear your discussion. Thank you both so much for all you did in building this alopecia Ariata program from the webinars to the podcasts. It's been a really big honor being a part of this. And so thank you so much. I'd like to thank Pfizer for supporting this program with grant funding. PEDRA is solely responsible for the creation and content of this programming. Thank you to Dr. Britt Craiglow and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio for all their contributions to this series. Our third and final episode will be released soon, so be sure to stay tuned for a discussion on the patient perspectives. Please be sure you follow us on social media. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as LinkedIn are all available by searching Pedra Research. If you're a Pedra member and you haven't done so already, please be sure to download the Pedra mobile app in iTunes or Google Play. You can find us under Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. Pedra has launched a hair disorders focused study group led by doctors Castello, Socio, and Craiglow. If you're interested in joining the group, have research questions or would like to further current research you can connect with us at info@pedraresearch.org thanks so much for listening and tune in next time